Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of INC Live, and we are doing the preview show for UFC 269. My name is Carl Bimage in a pitch black northeast of England, and I am joined by somebody who thankfully has a lot more sunshine than we do. It's John Marsh in MMA. John, thank you very much for joining us. What's up, Carl? What's up, INC Live? Yep, it's nice and sunny here in Pennsylvania. We're coming off a great UFC event last night, and we got ourselves a great pay-per-view this weekend. I mean, a great pay-per-view, because there's a lot of good cards in this, or a lot of good fights on this card, and, you know, I can't wait to talk about them with Carl here in a second. And I have to say as well, John, happy anniversary. It's four years to the day since you first started doing your first ever preview show, which I think was UFC 218, I believe. Yep, yep. Infamously uh, violent card. Very memorable card. But yeah, started the podcast over four years ago and done a podcast before every single UFC event. So you know how all you and uh, Carl and I do these preview shows before pay-per-views? Well, I've done one before every single fight night pay-per-view for the past four years in a row. So uh, an achievement I'm very proud of. Have you ever dared listen uh, back to the first episode you've done? Oh, hell no. It probably sounds terrible. I mean, I just hit record with, you know, saying, uh, and you know, and, you know, there's no point in re-listening to that. If it makes you feel better, when we did our first ever preview show, it was just, we just had a, a webcam in the corner of the room, and it was just me and a group of friends talking, like, no editing, nothing like that. Um, so Probably that, awful, yeah. That's going to make you feel a bit better. But I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity to talk about Raquel Pennington's only pay-per-view main event. Right, right, and uh, bad news for you. I th is she out of? No, no, no. What's her face is out of her fight. Avila is out of her fight in two Avila's weeks. Avila's out. So, um, they're trying to look for a replacement. I know Sarah Kaufman's desperate for that fight. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to keep your girl Rock, uh, Rock, Rocky Pennington on the card, man. Let's certainly hope so. And if there are people out there, John, who do want to see any of your previews in more detail, where is the best place for them to go? You can find me uh, at Martian MMA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, SoundCloud. Um, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts to get it on the mobile devices. Um, you can listen to YouTube, SoundCloud, wherever. Find me on Twitter, UFO underscore UFC. Certainly so. And I have to say, John does an absolutely fantastic job breaking down every card and going into a lot of detail as well when it comes to um, the bookie side of things. So if you do want to know where you can get some value for money, John is the best person to speak to. So the big question is, John, where was the big money from last night's card, uh, Rob Font versus Jose Aldo? Uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail before we get on to 269. And a lot of people already had Jose Aldo down as a first ballot UFC Hall of Famer. I think he confirmed his place once again with a fantastic performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, no doubt about it. What we saw last night was was just unexplainable. I mean... For Jose Aldo to be competing at this level of MMA this late into his career, he went pro 17 years ago. He started in the WEC 13 years ago, and he's essentially been fighting at the highest level of the sport for 13 years. He's at a new weight class. He suffered some tough losses to Holloway, to Connor, to Volkanovski. He reinvented himself at this 135-pound weight class, and he's knocking off great opponents. Marlon Vera, Pedro Munoz, Rob Font over five rounds. And, I mean, Font looked sharp last night. He had the right approach. He came at Aldo early. 
He made him uncomfortable. And Aldo still adapted, still rocked him, still took him down, still outgrappled him, outstruck him over five rounds. I mean, it was just a masterclass five-round performance, veteran lesson. And it just solidified why Jose Aldo is the best fighter of all time. We got my Jose Aldo shirt still on from last night. Probably won't take it off for a few weeks or something like that. Um, and, you know, I'm just I'm just grateful for Jose Aldo. Um, grateful to witness him fight. And it was just amazing to watch him last night. I think the way that the fans have reclaimed Jose Aldo as one of their own, I think it's been something which I, I've been very impressed to see because a lot of people forget this with Jose Aldo. You go back and you watch some of his early title defenses. He received a lot of criticism at times for maybe being a bit too conservative, a bit too safe. Then, of course, what happened against Conor happened. But I think those sort of like pure hardcore fans who followed the sport since the WEC days I really started to rally and say, no, this guy is a top-class, great fighter. And we're starting to see that rub off on a lot more of the, the casual fans, I would say. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that he was a little bit underrated for a while. He went to a lot of decisions in a row. Um, but then he got more and more high-profile fights. And I think people, you know, sympathize with him a little bit after his losses at 145. And um, they're just rooting for him more and more at 135. I mean, they threw him to the Wolves initially against uh, Marais and Jan. Um, but, you know, he still has had an amazing show for himself at this 135-pound weight class. And he just continues to add to his legacy. So I'm glad he's finally getting some of the respect and praise he deserves because uh, he is not only my favorite fighter of all time, but I believe he's the greatest fighter of all time. You, you've, um, actually so made just, a really, you've actually made a really good point there. I'm sorry for jumping in. But... I've had this argument with quite a few people, and I've had it with certain fighters, certain weight classes, but I think Aldo is a great case study of it. There's a big difference between being the best fighter and being the greatest. I think a lot of people equate greatness purely to portfolio, and yet you look at someone like Aldo, yes, he has lost to Volkanovski, yes, he has lost to Max Holloway twice, but those fighters, as good as they are, I don't think have the mystique and the legacy and the longevity as someone like Jose Aldo. So when everyone says who's the greatest featherweight of all time, I, I say immediately Aldo for those reasons. Yeah. The, I mean, the featherweight discussion is hard to have because, um, I mean, I think it would be Aldo, Holloway, Volkanovski, McGregor, but then McGregor has wins over Aldo and Holloway, and Volkanovski has wins over Aldo and Holloway. So it's interesting when you have this discussion. It might be easy to think that um, Max and Volkanovski are the best because they have the wins. But in terms of career greatness and achievement, uh, Aldo is still number one for me. I mean, um, he won another five-round decision last night. I think that's 7-0 and in five-round decisions in the WEC uh UFC era. He did lose his five round fight to Peter Jan. Um, but when the fight has gone the decision for the full five rounds, he's seven and oh. It just sh shows, you know, how well rounded this guy is, how good at winning rounds he is, how experienced he is. And, uh, you know, I just can't say enough good things about Jose Aldo. I love the guy to death. Before we get on to 269, anyone else who stood out for you? I mean, Faziev, look. Incredible. I was, uh, you know, picking and rooting for Brad Riddell there, but you can't take away from how great Fiziev looked. Um, and I know you want to talk about Chris Curtis, man. This guy's on a run lately. Um, you know, dumbass Dana White passed on him back in the Contender Series several years ago. I mean, this guy made a show built to bring in contenders and prospects. And when he gets a great contender prospect on his show, and he won by finish, if I recall correctly. I think he won by like 
head kick knockout and they still didn't sign him. They still didn't sign him for years and years and years. And then when they needed someone on a short notice, they finally give him a contract. And then what do you know? Two short notice fights. He knocks off two top 15 middleweights back to back, knocks them both out in the second round. Um, so, I mean, Chris Curtis is like you, like you tweeted earlier, one of the best stories in MMA right now. Six wins in 2021. He'd retired. He'd been in with the PFL. He retired twice. And I think he retired after the Contender Series as well when he didn't get the contract. So three retirements, six wins in a row. It has been a fantastic story. And I, I hope that we can continue this come 2022 because it has been, like I tweeted before, one of the sort of feel-good stories of the year. Yeah, I mean, and his fights are just like nonstop action too. I mean, both fights of his have been nonstop back and forth striking where he prevailed, uh, persisted, and knocked the guy out at the end of him. So, I mean... Honestly, probably one of the top debut uh, debutants of the entire year. Even though he came in on November, that's crazy, right? I mean, the month is twelve. Uh, the year is twelve years long. Oh my god, um, <laughs> the year is twelve months long, and he was only in the UFC for two of those months. And he might be one of the best debutants all year. So, yeah, I wish we could talk a little bit more detail about Font versus Aldo, the whole fight card. We're going to be moving on to two sixty nine. Now it is the last card of the year. And as the UFC normally seemed to do, 2020 was really the only exception, and there were obviously a lot of mitigating circumstances around that. But the UFC usually go out their way to make sure the last card of the year is a stacked one. And if you look at the undercard and the main card itself, you could argue they've done the same again. Yeah, I mean, they've done a really good job at, at stacking these pay-per-views. Um, we've been a bit critical of that at times uh, because some of the fight nights have been a bit lackluster lately, and the pay-per-view cards have been kind of overcompensating for that with like six, seven, eight, nine good fights on an entire card. Um, but, you know, there's nothing worth complaining about this week because we get to see all these great fights this week. We've already, you know, made it through all the rough fight night cards. Um, and now we're just, you know, dealing with the, the good parts of it with this amazing pay-per-view. So the fact that Munoz and Cruz and Emin and Ige are on the prelims just shows how high level this card is. And of course... Carl's favorite fighter in MMA, Amanda Nunes, defending her belt once again. We all cannot wait for that. Um, you know, women's bantamweight, obviously one of the top divisions in MMA. Everyone is talking about it. And, uh, you know, I'm just so excited to see Julia Pena test Amanda Nunes. Can't wait. I tell you what, we got a lot of people criticizing us for some of the comments we made about um, Rose Namajunas versus Jean Lee. Those people aren't going to like what we have to say about that this week's call, man. Fuck them. That's what I got to say. <laughs> I am curious to see what how many pay-per-view buys this card does because I think a lot of it's going to be built around Dustin Poirier, who's been one of the biggest stars of this year. But it's also going to be the first time that Dustin Poirier has been truly tested as a pay-per-view A-side. Like, no disrespect to Charles Oliveira, who obviously fantastic job winning the title, but I think most people are going to be going into this card for, for Dustin Poirier. So I'm going to be interested to see how many buys this does because is he going to get the rub from the two Connor wins? Um, are people going to be interested in, like, obviously Charles as champion? Uh, it's, it's quite intriguing to see. Yeah, I'm thinking about that pay-per-view number. I'm thinking three to 400,000. Um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, of good supporting names on the card. Uh, Nunez, Cody, O'Malley, uh, Dom Cruz all pretty well-known people. Um, but I don't think any of them are the type of fighters to really like draw you know, 
you know, pay-per-views, uh, especially Amanda Nunez, as Carl is very familiar with. Um, so I think, you know, maybe 500,000 would be a good number for them. Um, but I just don't think either of these guys, as great as they are, Poirier and Oliveira, you know, they're both great fighters, great guys. I just don't think they're going to, you know, inspire a whole lot of like unique pay-per-view buys. Um, but, you know, like you said, it's the end of the year. It's a great card. It might, you know, crack 500,000, uh, you know, to my surprise. I'm going to go for half a million as well. Before we actually get onto the main card itself, though, as you mentioned before, it's time for us to talk about the prelims. You can see those on the screen right now. I do want to stress that this card is subject to change. Obviously, we have quite a few last-minute pullouts these days. Uh, one fight I am most interested to see, though, is going to be the prelim headliner because for the first time in over a year, Josh Emmett is back in action. Now, the last time we saw him, he had that fantastic war against Shane Burgos, probably one of the best fights that... The UFC Apex is hosted, but he hasn't got himself an easy match coming back. He's going to be taking on Danny Ige, who once again gets another opportunity to get that sort of jump up in quality. I'm going to be interested to see this because if I had to judge two fully fit fighters, I would pick Josh Emmett to win this fight because he has the big power advantage. But 36 years old, his injury was an ACL, and if you follow any kind of sport, whether that's football soccer basketball you do your acl in it's very hit or miss on how good you are coming back so are we going to see the same josh emmett in seven days time yeah it's an interesting question uh i you gotta have you know some skepticism over emmett um you brought up good points the knee surgery um and not to mention he was just in that war with burgos too good thing you mentioned that i mean that fight against burgos was just insane i mean you can see about 30 seconds into that fight uh emmett throws a light kick and something is wrong with his knees so he was 30 seconds into that fight against shane burgos who we all know is you know a nasty fighter and for him to fight on one leg essentially and gut out that fight win that decision in that competitive boxing fight i mean just one of the the greatest displays of sheer toughness i've ever seen in mma um so josh emmett deserves a lot of credit I'm not too fond of this matchmaking, though. You know, you got Dan Ige coming off of a, a main event loss against Korean Zombie, and then you're throwing him right back in there with the top 10. I mean, Dan Ige gets no easy fights. Um, Emmett, you know, as well, coming off of a great win, uh, coming off of a, a long layoff, an injury, I would like to see them, you know, give him maybe uh, someone in, like, the top 20, top 25 instead of the top 10. So I think both these guys deserve a little bit easier fights um, because I don't want to see, you know, Ige lose two in a row. Um, but it, it's a great matchup so I'll pass it back to you to give your, your prediction before I give mine Carl I'm going to be leaning towards Dan Ige simply because I am so concerned about ACL injuries because I've seen this happen before in so many sports where a guy does that in and they're not the same like obviously recently in terms of MMA look at how much like Tiago Santos is a shadow of the fighter he was before the John Jones fight and of course, that was what mm -hmm. he did, and he did his ACL in. Yeah, it's a good reference. Uh, I mean, good comparison. Um, and I think he was, Santos was 36 too, you know, so, you know, pretty similar age. Both are also very reliant on their uh, explosiveness, their power. So it's going to be interesting for sure. Um, the odds last night, I checked, and Ige was like plus 185, plus 175. He's all the way down to plus 142 now. So this typically happens right after the, the last UFC ends. People start looking forward to the next UFC, start putting their bets in. Um, 
for instance, like last night, I bet Kai Car France and his line has dropped. But a lot of money coming in on Dan Ige in the past 24 hours. Um, and I think it's right because where the odds were initially for Ige put him at like 35% or below. I mean, that's a little bit off. Um, I think that Ige, or excuse me, Emmett is the deserved favorite. You see him at around 60% now. I think that's about right because um, don't forget, Josh Emmett has, you know, a decent wrestling game that he went to a lot early in his career won most of his early fights by taking his opponents down then kind of fell in love with his hands started knocking people out and he does have knockouts with both hands too so he has right hand knockouts left hand knockouts uh, a solid takedown game and he's extremely tough so i think that he does have a few more ways to win the fight than Ige. Um, but i am skeptical enough about the, the surgery and i respect Ige enough to say that i probably won't be betting uh emmett in this one and I think you got to take the underdog or uh, not bet this one at all. I think Ige by decision is probably a good bet. That'll probably be around like three to one odds. You mentioned the tough run of fights that Dan Ige has been having recently. It brings us on to Pedro Munoz because I've had a look at Pedro Munoz's last few fights since 2019. Cody Garbrandt, Aljamain Sterling, Frankie Edgar, Jimmy Rivera, Jose Aldo, and now he's fighting former bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz. Yeah, I mean, another murderous row of opponents. And, um, I mean, we're, we're treating these fights like we do the main card fights because they're that good. These are, you know, extremely elite level fights, and they deserve to be talked about a lot. So I know we usually only typically fully dive into the main card ones, this but these ones are, are worthy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would be a disservice to these fights not to not to put it on, um, you know, not to discuss it, I mean. So, uh, you know, I love both these guys. I mean, how could you not like both of these guys? I mean, Cruz has a little bit of, you know, a, an arrogant personality, so I could see not really liking him too much, but you got to respect him as a fighter. I was talking about Aldo earlier at the top level for so long. Uh, Cruz is right up there. I mean, he isn't quite at the elite level that Aldo is, but if he were able to pick up a win over Munoz, you know, he would be right in that discussion because i mean the prime of cruz's wbc career had to have started the same thing 13 14 years ago and he's had his uh you know fair share of injuries over the years so if he were able to to come back and to win uh, a fight like munoz i think it would bring him to a, a new level in like the the greatest of all time discussions because we saw him beat um casey kenny Kenny is a good, you know, top 10, top 15 fighter. Um, but Cruz was able to take Kenny down a little bit. He was able to, um, you know, wear on Kenny in the clinch situations. Pedro Munoz, notoriously hard to take down, notoriously hard to hold down. He's got that nasty guillotine of his own. So, um, it's going to be a little more difficult for Cruz to get some of that that grappling time. He's not going to be able to take breaks from the striking of Munoz because he's just such a, a hard guy to grapple. So I think this fight is going to be mostly striking. And you got to look at Dominic Cruz's fight against Cejudo. Cejudo chopped the legs really badly there. Munoz is known for chopping the mm -hmm. legs. And... You got to think, though, that, that Cruz was a little bit caught off guard by Cejudo there. Cejudo didn't typically smash the legs like that. It's not like he did it in a, in a, a wealth of fights in a row. Munoz is a reliable leg kicker. Cruz is going to know what's coming. I think he's going to be a little bit better prepared for those leg kicks, but I could see him still struggling with those leg kicks and just the... 
the sheer toughness and output of Munoz. I mean, this guy is one of the most durable fighters in the history of the UFC. Um, and his durability is still with him late into his career. The Jimmy Rivera fight proved that. He ate so many flush punches in that fight. So I'm leaning Munoz here. I'll, I'll go Munoz by decision. I think either guy is going to win this one 29-28. Um, but, you know, an incredible fight. I think this one deserves to be on the main card. Why do you think they're choosing to put Dominic Cruz back on the prelims? I don't know. I mean, you you like you hear the the narrative that the UFC likes to you know stack the prelims sometimes during the pay per view to I don't know uh, I guess inspire pay per view buys. But here's my thinking: if you're not already considering or you haven't already made the decision to buy the pay-per-view at 8 p.m. on Friday or on Saturday, how many people are really watching the prelims and go, oh, I'll I'll go over to ESPN Plus and spend $70 to watch this? I think it's an extremely minute amount of people. So putting really good fights on the prelims in hopes of of buffing up the pay-per-view, I don't really believe that that exists. Um, so... I personally probably would have put uh, Ponzinibbio and Jeff Neal on the prelims and thrown Munoz and Cruz up to the uh, to the main card. Anything else on the prelims that stands out for you? What's your uh, What's your pick for Munoz versus Cruz, Carl? I'm going to pick I'm going to pick Pedro Munoz. Uh, and I know that's a little bit surprising, but as you mentioned before, I think the leg kicks are going to cause Dominic Cruz a lot of problems, especially when a lot of Dom's success is based on how movement orientated he is. Uh, and personally, I thought I thought Casey Kenny gave him a very, very tough fight. And I think that while we praise Aldo for obviously continuing to perform at a high level, I think we're seeing Cruz starting to slow down. Not necessarily become a bad fighter, because he's not. But we're just starting to see that sort of veteran decline that sometimes happens with a lot of great guys. It's, it's natural. It's the circle of life. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. Um, and in terms of the rest of the prelims... Um, one thing I'm thinking about, this is, you know, a bit of a, a bad vibe comment, but a lot of Brazilians on this card. I hope, you know, everyone is able to, to get in mm-hmm. and test negative for COVID and whatnot. Uh, you know, hopefully everyone's vaccinated, traveling internationally. Uh, but, you know, that is a, a kind of a scary thing about this card. We got like six, seven, eight Brazilians coming uh, from Brazil typically. Um, and then in terms of fights, I'm looking at Aaron Blanchfield versus Miranda Maverick. Both of these women are under, what, 23, 24 years old. Um, you know, seem like bright prospects in women's mixed martial arts. And uh, I'm a big fan of Aaron Blanchfield. She's a New Jersey girl, pretty close to me. And she's the underdog. I think she's the better grappler. So I'll be picking Blanchfield as a dog. What's sticking out to you, Carl? I'm intrigued by Alex Perez versus Matt Schnell. More than anything, because... 13 months ago, Alex Perez headlined a UFC pay-per-view. He fought Figueredo, UFC 255. And nobody I've spoken to just seems to remember that fight actually happened. This guy headlined the pay-per-view. And here he is fighting, what, third and fourth fight on the card. In what I think is going to be a very entertaining match against Matt Schnell, who nearly always brings it. Yeah, I mean, how the you know how he's fallen from uh, main or pay-per-view main card, um, or pay-per-view main event title fight to now, you know, the fourth fight on the prelims. Um, I, mean, I think that kind of diminishes your own product. I mean, if you, if your title challenger main event headliner is now on the bottom of the prelims, like I feel like that, you know, that shows that your product isn't the highest level. I mean, even though Perez is a good fighter, um, I'm excited for this fight too. I just kind of think Perez has him covered everywhere and he should win pretty, pretty handedly. 
So that's all the prelim setup, and there's plenty of fantastic fights, which obviously John will get into in a lot more detail on his own show. For now, though, we're going to be focusing on fight number one of our pay-per-view main card, and it's our obligatory pay-per-view main card appearance for Sean O'Malley. Um, before we actually get into his main event fight, where he's going to be talk taking on Valiant Val Piver, hope I pronounced that right, um... I want your opinion on the things that Sean O'Malley's been saying in the build-up to this. Because after the Chris Moutinho match, which there was a lot of criticism from the UFC that rather than give him someone who was a little bit more tougher, they went for somebody on the regional scene who was arguably there to be a bit of a punching bag. And Sean O'Malley made a comment, which I'm just paraphrasing here. This weren't his, these weren't his exact words. But he said something along the lines of, why should I fight bigger names when I'm not getting paid more to do it? And there's two sort of schools of thought. There's the sort of fight fan who wants to think, well, you want to challenge yourself. You want to test yourself against the best guys. And then there's other people who are saying, yeah, Sean, it might not be the ethical right thing to do, but you're being the smart businessman. And I do agree with you when you say, hey, if you want me, why, you, why do you want me to pay? Why do you want to pay me five grand? to fight a Frankie Edgar or a Cheeto Viva when I could fight these guys instead. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I don't think that, that uh, Sean's the smartest guy. I think a lot of the stuff he says is, is pretty stupid, honestly. But this is an interesting discussion. I'm glad you brought it up because um, he is making the smart you know, business decision, the, the right risk management decision, right? Um, you got to think that if... You know, he's getting the same pay. You might as well take the fight with the highest probability that you have to win. Um, but that is also going to pay, you know, or be a detriment long term because uh, the tough matchups in your career make you a better fighter. And the more tough matchups you face and, you know, if you're persistent, if you work on your mistakes, if you work to overcome why you lost, you can actually become, you know, a really good fighter. So I kind of think of it like the the regional scene uh, argument. So would you rather get or get matched up with a promotion that's going to give you five easy opponents, you finish all five of them, and you get to the UFC in five fights? Or would you rather go, you know, six and three, seven and four, but actually take tough fights and, you know, face good fighters from other gyms? Um, I would rather have the fighter who's seven and four, because I know they're going to actually be fighting tough matchups. They're going to be getting better, but that they're probably not going to get in the UFC because they don't have that perfect five and zero record. So it's a really interesting debate. Um, you know, Piva I think is a big step up, but, um, you know, I'll pass it back to you to give your thoughts on the matchup. Well, the alternative to Sean O'Malley is what we saw with Kevin Lee. Like Kevin Lee took a lot of very tough matches early in his UFC run. Like he was beating guys like Trinaldo, Mustafaev and he got a massive buzz from that and a lot of people were saying future UFC champion but because he was only taking the tough matches when the losses started rolling in the UFC were quicker to cut him than he would have been if he took a an easier path into the top 15. Yeah I, I do kind of feel bad for, for Kevin Lee um you know I think they're they're diluting the roster I mean it's it's pretty clear that you can get uh eight contender series fighters for the cost of one, you know, experienced veteran fighter like Kevin Lee, like Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem. So, um, you know, they're getting rid of a lot of those, you know, you know, guys that are kind of stuck in the middle. Um, but, you know, getting back to this Piva Mali fight, um, I mean, I really think that the Piva is a well-rounded fighter. I mean, I think the guy is kind of unknown amongst, uh, you know, a lot of fans. Um, 
but his run of flyweight was good. He had uh, his debut at 135, you know, went through hell in round one versus Kyler Phillips. Um, sorry for a uh, barrage of motorcycles driving by, if you can hear that. Um, but he, he got knocked down, you know, severely badly in round one versus Kyler Phillips. Looked to be, you know, nearly unconscious a few times. Still managed to come back and wins round two and three of that fight. So it was a little bit the fact that Kyler gassed out. But you still got to respect the toughness, the skills of Paiva to withstand that. And I think a similar thing could happen here where... O'Malley starts fast. He's landing the hands on Paiva. Paiva's not really reacting too well to the punches, but the guy's extremely durable. And I don't think O'Malley is, you know, the biggest puncher. I mean, we've seen him tee off on guys like Terran Ware, Chris Moutinho, and, and not really finish them. It took him to the round three to finish uh, Thomas Almeida. So I don't think O'Malley has that that one punch power like we saw in the Eddie Wineland fight. So. Paiva's pr- uh, probably going to lose round one here, going to have a tough round one, but rounds two and three are going to get real, real interesting. Um, we're going to see, you know, O'Malley's cardio tested against a good fighter. Paiva is a solid grappler. You might see O'Malley's grappling tested. So um, I don't think O'Malley is nearly good enough of a, of a fighter to deserve being the, the 75% favorite here. Um, but you'll probably also get Paiva as a better bet in the live betting. So wait around, bet Paiva, and I'll definitely be cheering for holding on Paiva here. I do like how Paiva uses pressure. That's one of the things I have liked about him. He is a very sort of come-forward fighter, which, bearing in mind how good of a counter-striker Sean O'Malley is, that might be a bad thing. But as you mentioned before, the conditioning of Sean is going to be something which I'm going to have a keen eye on. I'm also interested... I also agree with you. I think a lot of people have framed the idea of Sean O'Malley being the sort of one-punch knockout artist who is just flatlining everyone. I do think his stock took a little bit of a hit in that regard, bearing in mind what happened against Moutinho. Yeah, I mean, I saw Moutinho get rocked and hurt several times uh, on the regionals, and I was expecting him to get knocked out in the first round. I really was. Um, And with the amount of punches that Sean O'Malley landed, he should have knocked him out a lot sooner, in my opinion. Um, Maybe Moutinho just showed up with, you know, an incredible durability or something. Durability does kind of vary like that. Sometimes you'll see a guy get knocked out early and then the next fight, they'll just show some crazy chin. But uh, O'Malley, looking at his record, he does technically have five knockouts in a row. Um, And I just think that plays into him being, oh, excuse me. Four knockouts in a row. He lost by a knockout technically versus Vera. Um, I just think that kind of plays into him being overrated still. I think, um, you know, I know you guys aren't too interested in betting, but I mean, if O'Malley would have went to the decision against Almeida and Moutinho, would he still be, you know, a minus 300 or more favorite here or would the line be a little bit closer? So uh, I'm just not really ready to consider O'Malley a legit prospect yet I know that might seem crazy to some but I'm telling you this guy is not as good as the UFC wants you to think he is um Paiva is the best opponent he's fought at Bantamweight so far and or excuse me besides uh Marlon Vera uh but but Paiva is probably you know in between 15 and 20th at Bantamweight and it's probably one of the toughest tests. So O'Malley's fought no one in the top 10. Don't let, don't let yourself get confused and think this guy is some legit proven prospect because he's not. And I really hope that Paiva does test him this weekend. If Paiva is going to get the victory, how do you think it's going to happen? I think it'll be decision. Yeah. I, I will be picking Sean O'Malley to win this one. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to say a second round finish. I do have some sort of... I, 
while Valium Paiva is very durable, we saw that against Kyler Phillips, um, I just don't think that he has anything. I, I think the big thing that's going to hurt Sean is somebody who is a real top-level wrestler, because I do have questions about his grappling game. Um, I also don't think that Sean is the most durable fighter. He's broken bones in, I think, three of his UFC fights. Obviously, there was the Sukumanta, uh, the Cheeto Vera loss, and I think he broke his hand against Moutinho as well. So I think that's something mm. that's going to be a concern. Um, if Piver had that sort of great wrestling game, I would maybe say take a quick punt on him. I just don't think he has that, and I do think Sean O'Malley is going to be able to... I, I can see him hurting him to the body. I can see like a good body yeah. kick, him keeling over, and Sean teeing off. I'll uh, I'll straight up pick Piva, so we'll have a little bit of fun to, to disagree on this one. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think the UFC is still massively invested in the Sean O'Malley experiment. I mean, this is what? He's four-fifth in the main card appearance. Yeah, and, you know, maybe he'll... Uh... Maybe he'll fight. I mean, I think Paiva is a good step in the right direction, but I think they could have given him someone a, a few steps higher too to, to really test him. But and, uh, I'm excited for this fight. And I think people are ready for it as well. They we're starting to get into sort of MVP territory with Sean O'Malley. We're desperate for the jump equality. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good comparison. I like that one. Now, this is going to be an interesting fight. It's fight number two on our main card. And we're going down to the flyweight division. It's very rare that we see the flyweights getting showcased on the main card of a pay-per-view. And we've got ourselves a really intriguing matchup. Cody Garbrandt, after UFC 207, I think he was, what, 10, 11, and 0 in the UFC. This big, powerful knockout artist. A lot of charisma, a lot of personality behind him. Things haven't gone very well since then, though. He had the two losses to TJ Dillashaw. Got knocked out against Pedro Munoz. We thought, when he knocked out a Sun Sal, that he was back in action. Then comes the Rob Font decision. And he makes this big call, which took a lot of people by surprise. He's going to drop down to flyweight for the first time. Now, this is two ways that this could go. And I want your opinion before we actually get into dissecting the fight. Is this going to be TJ Dillashaw or is this going to be Jose Aldo? TJ. Easy. And what is it that makes um, you think that? So... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean... The guy has had, you know, some chin problems at 135. It's, you know, I guess it's more of a defense problem. It's not like he's getting dropped with weak shots. I mean, he's getting caught with big bombs. But he did get knocked out three fights in a row, right? So, um, you know, he got dropped in those fights uh, like twice each too. So a lot of damage in those few fights. Um, you know, Rob Font put a clinic on him, jabbing him up, uh, just outstriking him overall. And I just don't understand the the move to 125. I mean, I think a lot of fighters think that a move in weight class is going to solve some issues. Unless you're you're Jose Aldo, I, I don't think that's typically right the right move. And Cody had a big speed advantage at 135. He's extremely quick, but moving down to 125, you're kind of giving up that speed advantage, and that's probably one of his biggest attributes as a fighter. So, going down to the smaller weight class. Uh, I think he's given up some speed, and he's running into a really, really stiff test in his first fight. I, I really don't get the UFC matchmaking. Again, if you got this guy, Cody Garbrandt, who, who I personally don't like as a fighter, but if I'm matching him up with someone, I'm giving him a winnable fight, someone outside of the top 15 at ban at flyweight. He gets a win under his belt. He gets more comfortable. You get to see, you get to put him in a higher profile fight in his next fight. It's it's a good business strategy. But putting him in a really risky matchup against Kai Carr France, who has good boxing, who has knockout power, 
I think it's a really dangerous matchup for Cody Garbrandt. I think what this fight is up is for me is it's a litmus test to see how Cody could handle 125. It's a it's a little bit similar to when Rockhold moved up to 205 and he put him against Jan Blachowicz, which is on that sort of top number six, number seven range, just to basically see is this guy good enough to be like a top ten light heavyweight? And then obviously if he doesn't, you don't really lose anything from Rockhold's perspective because he can then go back down. And I think this is sort of what they're doing with Cody Garbrandt. I do agree with you, though, that if I wanted to try and keep the Cody Garbrandt bandwagon going, which you'd want to because he's a big charismatic knockout artist, you would give him against somebody who was maybe a, an easier matchup, somebody who was maybe a bit more grappling orientated, because I'm with you. I like Kaikawa France. I think he's got great boxing combinations. He works the body very well. We saw that uh, plenty of times before. Um... Yeah, I really do like I do like Kaikawa fans. I think that if we saw Rob Font just jab and irritate Cody for 25 minutes in that main event uh, early on in the year, I can easily see Kaikawa fans doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I think that um, he's going to, I think... Kaikar France is not scared to exchange. He's not scared to brawl. We saw that in the Roy Vall fight. And he's not the same uh, methodical, technical striker that Fon is. He's not going to, you know, outstrike him, move backwards, you know, retreat, uh, find out the, the right combination. I mean, Kaikar France will get in that pocket and he will throw down. And Cody Garbrandt can, can do that at times too. But that's where he gets really vulnerable in those exchanges. That's where we've seen him hurt multiple times at Bantamweight. But um, Kaikar France, not you know, extremely durable. We did see him mm. get rocked by that crazy spinning elbow. Um, we did see him taken down and get his back taken by uh, Hojiro Bontra. We saw him have a really tough fight with uh, Holyon Paiva, who we were just talking about. Um, so there are some, you know, vulnerabilities from Kaikar France. But uh, for this matchup, I still like him. I still will be picking him. Um, I think that the grappling will be interesting to see here whether Cody Garbrandt shoots a takedown. But with how scrambly these guys are at 125, with Cody not really having the best top control, I don't think Cody's going to keep Kai down for a long period of time. And I think uh, we're just going to have some real competitive striking exchanges here. So I, I think this one's kind of like a coin flip, maybe even uh, Kai Car France as a slight favorite because Cody's um, floor you know, could be a lot lower than we think. I mean, he could eat one or two punches and his chin might not be the same at all like TJ Dillashaw, like you mentioned. So Cody's floor is could be a lot lower than we think. Um, and I got a bet in on Kaikar France last night. He was plus 150 last night. He's already down to plus 120 now. So the action is coming in on Kaikar France as well. And uh, I would have done Kaikar France versus uh, Alex Perez and I would have given Matt Schnell Cody Garbrandt. That now would be a hell of a fight. I think that match. I think Schnell matches up very well with Cody Garbrandt. I'd also argue yeah, as well that, that I'd also argue as well. I think Kai has the more diverse striking set than what Cody does because Kai can throw in the kicks. Obviously, he's got the striking and the jab to go with it. Cody is nearly all boxing based. Yep. Yeah. Very good point. Yep. And as as you mentioned before, so he, he, I think that a guy who is notoriously chinny going down to 125 admittedly these guys don't hit as hard as they do at 135 but that's a big concern for cordy yeah kai's got some legit pop i mean watch that bontran fight i mean he he escapes that back take and, and one or two punches and bontran you know is on queer street um hilarious stoppage by herb dean there too 
No surprise there. And are you picking Kaikara France? I am picking Kaikara France, and it might, that might be a bit of a surprise to some people. Obviously, Cody Garbrandt has the bigger name. He's got the higher profile wins, but I just think there's too many concerns over Cody's chin at 125. I don't know if the power is going to translate. Um, I think Kai is intelligent enough to try and avoid the sort of big, sort of wild brawls that Cody wants to get into. So I'm going to say Kai Kara France by decision. If there's one concern, though, we have seen Kai get rocked a couple of times by guys who are far worse strikers than Cody Garbrandt. And that's the only concern I have. But I am picking Kai to get this one. Nice. Me too. Now we move on to fight number three. Now I want to add a little bit of a disclaimer because this might be very out of date by the time we put this together. We're still not 100% sure whether or not this fight is going to take place. There have been a lot of reports over some of the legal issues surrounding Jeff Neal, but at this moment in time, at the time of recording, this fight is going to be fight number three on the main card. It's a welterweight bout, which I think has a lot of people very intrigued. Jeff Neal is taking on Santiago Ponzinibbio. Bookmaker's odds for this one, as it stands right now, is an absolute pick of minus 110 on both sides. John... We were expecting Leon Edwards versus Jorge Masvidal. Is this a good enough replacement? No, it's not. It's still a really good fight, um, but you know I kind of had forgotten about that until now. But yeah, Leon would have been uh, Leon versus Jorge uh, would have been really fun. It would have taken this card to a whole nother level. I think we're looking at like an A minus pay per view here. That would have brought it up to an A plus. Um, so it's a, a bit unfortunate uh, that that happened. But, uh, you know, the, the legal trouble you're talking about, I think it is relevant to mention. He, you know, was arrested for a DUI. I don't know what the the substance was. I assume alcohol, obviously the most common. I don't know if that was officially announced or not. But, um, you know, it's relevant. It's relevant to bring up um, because, you know, if you're – this was on Thanksgiving. So if you're, you know, getting drunk and drunk driving – on Thanksgiving Day, two weeks before your fight, probably not a good sign for your preparation for the camp. Uh, when you throw that in with Jeff Neal's past two performances, where mm -hmm. he looked particularly uninspired, um, you gotta, you know, really start to question Jeff Neal here. Uh, I think that the Jeff Neal really looked amazing in his early UFC run when he was fighting guys who would kind of stand in front of him and trade. Um, like Nico Price, like Frank Camacho. Um, and he quickly ran into the higher level of competition where he started to struggle. I don't really blame him for the loss uh, against uh, Stephen Thompson because um, that was a really difficult matchup. Uh, obviously, Wonder Boy is an incredible striker. Neil's only really a striker as well. So I can see why that was tough. But Neil Magny... I don't really give him too much slack for. I mean, look at the the comparisons between these guys' fights against Neil Magny. I know Ponzinibbio was a few years ago, but I mean, he absolutely torched Neil Magny, kicked his leg to shit, outboxed him easily, and stopped him in the fourth round. Really had barely any trouble with that fight at all. Jeff Neil severely struggled versus Neil at distance in the clinch. You know, everywhere. Um, so I think that. I got to side with Santiago Ponzinibbio here. Uh, I think that he did have a somewhat uh, or somewhat concerning performances of his own. Uh, obviously, getting sparked by Jing Liang early like that. Um, that was off a three-year layoff. Jing Liang is a massive puncher. 
So that deserves a little bit of, of slack. But the Baeza fight, he got leg kicked early on. His leg looked to be in bad shape. It looked like he was going to lose the fight. But somehow he was able to ignore that leg damage to keep fighting to get his own leg kicks going and to have an absolute barn burner in round two and three. Um, that's my number one fight all year. I know we've had a lot of great fights, some great five-round fights. The fight last night, uh, Jan versus Sanhagen. This is my number one fight all year, Ponzinibbio versus Baeza. I mean, that's shit is just incredible um the the story of the fight uh Ponzinibbio losing round one coming back to win round two having a back and forth round three and they literally swing to the absolute bell like Max Holloway Ricardo Lamas style uh, with Baez's mouthpiece going flying at the end I think that Ponzinibbio just showed that he still is a high level fighter he's still extremely durable he still has what it takes to be uh, a high level fighter at this welterweight weight class in that fight so at a pick em, at 50-50 odds, I got to go with Ponzinibbio here. Um, what, what are your thoughts here, Carl? I'm glad you brought up the Baeza versus Ponzinibbio fight because I think that was absolutely fantastic as well. And I think a lot of people have forgotten just how good Santiago Ponzinibbio was because he obviously had a long break from the sport. I don't know if it was injuries or drug issues or, regards, or anything like that. But... Before he had his break, he was on a seven-fight winning streak. And as you mentioned before, destroyed Neil Magny, which was fight night Argentina. I think it was at Buenos Aires, I think. And there were people out there saying, hey, this guy is a welterweight dark horse. You could put him against somebody in the top three or top four, and he could give them a run for his money. A lot of that momentum was lost by the long break, and then he had a really rusty performance against the Leech. And I think because of that, I think people have forgotten just how good he actually is. And if you get a Ponzinibbio performing at the same sort of level that he was back in 2017, 2018, you've got yourself a guy who, in my opinion, is deserving of being in the top 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's definitely top 10. Uh, that Baeza fight proved that. Um, and the Baeza is an orthodox striker, you know, so that, that leg kick is going to be a lot easier to hit uh, when you're fighting orthodox versus orthodox. Jeff Neal's a southpaw. He's not going to be able to target that outside calf as easily. Um, and he's not really a notorious uh, you know, calf kicker. I think Neal kind of struggles to set up his offense. He, he swings hard. He punches hard. But in terms of setting up his offense in like a, a smart, efficient way, I think he kind of lacks knowledge in that. And that's a big trend amongst Fortis MMA fighters. Uh, you see like a guy last night, Alonzo Menefield, this huge athletic tank. He just doesn't know how to how to set up the strikes. He doesn't have that high level of striking. So uh, I think Fortis MMA is more of like a, a cardio and wrestling camp than it is a high-level striking camp. And I think Jeff Neal has gone a bit underdeveloped in his striking as a result of that. I would argue that Jeff Neal... I, I do agree with you, John. I do agree with you that maybe Fortis does have this sort of flaw when it comes to maybe sort of shot selection. But I think that's an issue that's always been brought up with Ponzinibbio as well. Like, if you go back and you look at what some of, like, Ponzinibbio's losses... A lot of the guys who got the better of him, people like Lorenz Larkin, for example, they exploited his lack of shot selection. He'll throw the same combinations over and over throughout the fight. And I think, Jeff is Jeff Neal more than capable of trying to do that? I'm not entirely sure, but I hope for Ponzinibbio's perspective, that's a flaw in his game he started eyeing out. Yeah, that is, that is true. Um, and then the it should be a, a striking fight. I'm just trying to imagine any grappling happening. 
it seems extremely unlikely that any takedowns occur, but I guess I would give Ponzinibbio a little bit more likelihood of hitting a takedown here. Um, but still, I don't think that it's going to happen. The only reason I think it might is because um, Neil was taken down a few times by Ponzinibbio, uh, or excuse me, by Neil Magny. Uh, you know, Magny's a, a master at, at working his way into the clinch and getting those takedowns. Um, so I think that, that that's possible. But uh, I hope these guys strike. Uh, it should be a fun striking matchup, but I got to go with Ponzinibbio. I think he's higher output, more consistent. Um, He's got a little bit better tools with his jab, his leg kick, better range finders. So I'll be picking Ponzinibbio by decision here. I will pick Ponzinibbio by decision as well. Um, I do hope, if I had to put my own sort of biased head on here, I was somebody who did buy into the idea of Jeff Neal potentially being a welterweight dark horse. So I would hate the idea of him going three losses in a row. Yeah, I mean, I, I initially liked the guy a lot too, but... I think that he really has hit a wall in terms of his development. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I think it is just a consequence of his own actions um, that, that it's turning out like this. But uh, he did fight on the, the, the year-end pay-per-view two years ago, and he did knock out Mike Perry in round one. So he might have some good some good juju on this card. Like but you got to think, with the DUI, man, I mean, that's mm-hmm. bad. I mean, six, 16 days before a fight, you're getting drunk and drunk driving. I mean, pretty bad sign. If he's been allowed to compete, though, it's probably picograms. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy <laughs> that we we're even discussing him being able to to compete. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, if it were the NFL, well, I mean, he probably would have been suspended. What four, six games or something like that. I mean, I don't think that you have to take him out of the fight right away. But you know, for his own sake, don't you think that he would be like, maybe, uh, maybe I should pull out. I don't know. I don't know. So hopefully the fight stays intact and we didn't just analyze all this shit for nothing. So we move on to our core main event and it's the girl who got knocked out by Alexis Davis versus the girl who got submitted by Jermaine Durandamy. It's Nunes versus Pena, <laughs> Phantomweight title on the line. Now, you know me, John, I do like my starts and I've come up with an absolute belter here. When Amanda Nunes steps into the octagon at UFC 269, it will be 729 days between title defenses. Now that is the longest gap for any belt in UFC history. The second longest was Cain Velasquez, which was 602 days between the third fight with Junior Dos Santos and the match with Fabrizio Verdu. Now, exactly. It, It just goes to show, you know, and... Anybody who's been following the channel, watches me on these videos, follows me on social media, knows I've been very critical of what's happened to the women's bantamweight division over these past few years. How can the UFC expect fans to be invested in the weight class when the belt's not being defended and the company are making no attempt to try and build new contenders? Well, they they can't be interested. Um, It's, you know... It's kind of like an oxymoron at this point. Um, you know, we've been, you know, pretty vocal advocates of all this for a while. I mean, it's it's she does get a little bit of slack because she did defend the belt in other divisions. Um, but you still got to feel, feel for some of these other bantamweights. I mean, Holly Holm, Arena Aldana, they're kind of just trapped in limbo uh, at 135. Um, Raquel Pennington as well. Uh Avila was on her way up, but now, you know, her progress is kind of halted as well. So there's just not really much going on in that division. Um, and 
you know, I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I don't think it, I think it's a really low level division. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, Aspen Ladd's embarrassing ass. Uh, you know, she was number three in that division, right? And she just looked, you know, absolutely terrible, missing weight, then fighting and looking absolutely terrible. Um, so, you know, there's just not much to care about at this Bantamweight weight class. Uh, not really much to care about about this fight either. I think what makes things worse for a lot of people who are upset about it is we saw what happened with Francis earlier this year. Like Francis wins the heavyweight title and four months later, the company decide you're not being active enough and they create the interim belt for Cyril Garn. Yet another one of their champions is allowed to go two years without defending a belt. And the UFC haven't done anything about it. And I think you sort of mentioned yeah. it before. I think there's I think there's a big issue with a lot of the big relevant matches atop the weight class aren't happening. Like if you look at the sort of top rung of Bantamweight fighters, Nunes hasn't fought there for two years. Holly one year, Jermaine one year, Aspen two years. Like you can make a big argument the reason Pena's getting this title fight is she's been the only bantamweight fighter who's been trying to stay active, and more than anything, trying to get people to care. Like, say what you want about Juliana. I know there's a lot of fans that don't like her, but she's doing her damnedest to try and sell this fight. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all for nothing, too. Um, so, you know, I don't give her you know too much credit for that. I think it would be more noble of her to, to just no-sell it. Be like, yeah, you know, probably, probably going to lose. Pro- fight's probably going to suck. Um, that would be more noble. Um, you know, Vieira, um, probably would have been in her spot if she got that decision over Kuniskaya. Um, just bad, uh, bad timing for her with the end of that round three. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get into, to knocking off this, this prediction of ours. I mean, it seems obviously a matter of how Nunez will win, how quickly she will win. And, you know, Sarah McMahon was able to take down Pena and outgrapple her for the first two rounds of that fight. Uh, if she if she didn't, you know, gas out severely in round three and lose in typical Sarah McMahon fashion, it could have been a 30-27 grappling clinic from uh, Sarah McMahon. So you got to think that Nunez should be able to take her down with ease. You should be able to think that Nunez should be able to outstrike her with ease. And it just seems like a matter of how long will Pena last before getting finished. Um, the over in this fight is set at one and a half rounds, which is as low as it gets, especially in a, in a five round fight. Um, so what are you thinking, Carl? You thinking over or under one and a half rounds? I think it might go into the second I think it's going to be one of those situations where most of the damage is done in the first round and then the job gets done in the second. I wouldn't be surprised as well if we maybe see Nunes trying to do it by submission uh, because that has been a big penny weakness. We've seen uh, far weaker grapplers than Nunes uh, be able to finish Pena. So obviously we saw Jermaine Duranami with the guillotine. Shevchenko got an armbar off her back. So I think that maybe that's a big concern. Um, I can't Look, I can see... There are people out there who do think that Juliana Pena could cause some problems. And if we have had a look through some of Pena's previous fights, one of the things she is able to do is to make it a dirty, grimy, gritty fight. And we have seen Pena take down fighters who traditionally have very good takedown defense. We've seen her take down Jermaine, who was a far bigger fighter. We've seen her take down Shevchenko. So there is a possibility for Pena, if she is able to survive the onslaught to maybe turn it into that grimy match. But the flaws she shows in terms of her striking, and especially in terms of how slowly she starts fights, 
she's never going to be able to get the chance to do it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of good points there. I mean, you're giving you're giving you know Pena her you know. Well, I'm trying uh, the, to uh, some respect. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh you know I think you brought up as good as points as you can for a fight like this. Um, Pena does typically lose round one, um, but she she does have you know some good fight in her. Lost round one to. Z- Gano to Montano and to McMahon and was able to come back and win all three of those fights. Um, but she also was winning versus uh, Duranda May, I think, early on and then went on to lose that fight. Um, so it seems like she, she really struggles putting together a solid 15 minutes. It seems like she can have, you know, a good two rounds, but she really has never had a good, like, three-round performance. Uh, maybe the Jessica I fight from way back in the day. But, um, you know, if Pena can get on top, you know, we have seen, uh, you know, I don't even know if I would go as far to say we have seen Nunes struggle off her back. I mean, we had way, way back in the day, but it's hard. she hasn't done anything recently to say that she she struggles off her back. So maybe if Pena can get in top position, we can see a situation like uh, the Maya and Shevchenko fight where maybe Maya gets on top to win one round and makes it randomly closer than we expect in one round. But ultimately, you got to think Nunes should prevail. Um you know, you got to think if Nunes gets on top, there's a good chance that, that Pena doesn't get up, that it's either the round is going to be over or she's going to get finished because when Pena gets taken down, she really, really struggles getting off of her back. Uh, you can see that in the Montano, the Zingano, and the McMahon fight, all women who are, you know, uh, inferior grapplers to Nunes. So I think it'll probably be second or third round finish for Nunes. So I'll go with the over one and a half as well. I think Nunes... Nunes Pena can make it seven and a half minutes. Um, it's a good thing you mentioned there about Nunes being off her back because you're going to love this. The last person to take down Nunes was Rocky Pennington. Wow. Well, how much control time did she get off of it? Uh, Two minutes and 13 seconds. That's what, they have in the, that's what they have in the stats for the overall fight. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe it's worth going back and looking to see how she looked off her back. Do you remember what happened once she got taken down? Um, I, I think Raquel, Raquel had taken a lot of damage by that point. I think it was just a case of take her down and Rocky didn't really, tr- I mean, there was a couple of like rabbit shots, stuff like that, but nothing meaningful in terms of, um, like massive offense. One, one thing, one thing I want to bring up uh, that I haven't thought about till now is Nunez's energy at 135 mm-hmm. versus 145. She seems a lot more conservative with her energy at 135. Remember the the Durand and May fight, arguably gassed out in like that second or third round. I mean, she looked extremely tired in that third, fourth, and fifth round, doing the bare minimum, getting those takedowns. And I mean, Durand and May is is terrible off of her back, just like Megan Anderson is terrible off of her back. Um, and Nunez, you see against Anderson, you know, going ape shit in round one, searching for that finish and finding it. Versus Durand and May, she was content to lay and pray for. 20 minutes in that fight or something like that and just do nothing on top no attempt to finish no attempt to arm triangle or nothing um so it's really a uh, it's a good question i think i think it'll either be over in the first like three minutes or maybe we actually might like get a a really long boring decision from nunez what which i know you would love to see to lower <laughs> her her fan appeal even more than it already is um but i think we've discussed this enough i'll go with nunez submission round three i'm going to say nunez submission round two but i'm glad you mentioned the difference between 145 and 135 because that's a fact that a lot of people aren't bringing up this is going to be nunez's first fight at 135 for two years 
And I've seen a lot of fighters mm -hmm. who have spent a long time in one weight class try going back down and in some worst case scenarios completely lose everything that made them so good. Like the one that comes to mind for me is Roy Jones. Like Roy Jones goes up to heavyweight, tries going back down to middleweight, loses all of his speed, his elusiveness, hasn't got the same pop on his shots anymore, Tarver knocks him out in two rounds. Now that's obviously a worst case scenario. But when you bear that in mind, two years away from the division, her weight cuts were always already severe. You go back and you watch the weight cuts mm -hmm. at 239, and for the Jermaine fight, she barely made the scales. That's something to maybe bear in mind that that weight cut could be very, very hard two years later as an older yeah. fighter who's been away for a, a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, you brought up the Roy Jones example, but you can just look at her own career. I mean, she had two of her best career performances at 145, knocking out Cyborg, knocking out Holly Holm at 145, and then dropped down to 135 later in the year and looked extremely underwhelming. Um, arguably, her worst performance uh, in in six, seven, eight years, that fight against a random, like, just awful. I mean, they should erase that fight from UFC Fight Pass history. I am going to make a bit of a bold prediction, though. Um, and I want to know if you Let's think that it. there's maybe some sort of like sort of method in my madness, as it were. I'm going to make a bold prediction. Nunes is going to win this fight. There's no question about that. But during the post-fight interview with Joe Rogan, she takes the gloves off and leaves them in the center of the cage. I, I can see it. I can see it. And, you know, I, I would honestly respect her more than I have for the past few years if she decided to do that. She has really little left to prove, or, or nothing left to prove, really. I mean, who, wh what is her, their, what is their left for her? Ketlin Vieira? Really? That's it. Ketlin Vieira and Irina Aldana are the only, you know, respectable women that she hasn't beat. Uh, I mean, I don't think that she has to stick around to, to fight those two. Um, she, you know, has a, a daughter now. Uh, it seems like um, her wife, Nina, might be done fighting as well. She had a pretty bad showing. Um, Against Mackenzie Dern. Has Nina got another fight announced yet? She was supposed oh, to fight. Yeah, no, um, but has she announced another fight? She was supposed to fight Lemosh on the end of your card, but uh, that got pulled out. Angie Hill's taking the place. Ooh. Yeah, she she should retire too, Nina. They should both retire, sail off into the sunset. I'm sure Nunes has got uh, a few million in the bank. Um, and yeah, that's a good prediction. I like it. I, I I'll uh, I, I won't say I agree because I don't want to steal your thunder, but I like the the idea. And one more thing before we end this, I want you to finish off this line: If Juliana Pena wins this fight, I will dot dot dot. care about women's mixed martial arts <laughs> less than ever um i'll i'll add my own here and that, i'm gonna I mean, people better hope that doesn't happen i'm gonna actually post this on facebook and on twitter if juliana pena wins this fight and i want to stress i don't think pena will i will buy a juliana pena t-shirt and i will wear it for the ufc 270 preview show and I think you should do a shoey too. <laughs> if if that, if if Ty to if Ty Tuivasa and Juliana Pena win, we're both doing shoeys on the next preview show. Okay, Dundale, Dundale. I agree. There we go.
It's time for us to talk about our main event here, and we are going to one of the marquee divisions in the UFC. It is the lightweight division, and it is the first title defense for probably one of the most surprising champions in the division's history, Charles Oliveira. He's going to be taking on, though, a guy who many people believe is already the best lightweight in the world, Dustin Poirier. And I think it's been very interesting to see how people have sort of treated Charles Oliveira in these sort of six or seven months since he won the belt because I, I mean no disrespect to Charles Oliveira because I think he's a fantastic fighter. The growth he's made over the past four or five years has been fantastic. But there are a lot of people out there who rather unfairly don't see him as a legitimate champion. And I, I think that's maybe because he never fought the Justin Gages, the Dustin Poiriers of the world. There was a Michael Chandler fight, which he won, which he did struggle before he managed to get the win. And I think it's maybe a bit unfair that some of the treatment, like people are almost treating this as if it's already a kit walk for Dustin Poirier. Charles Oliveira is a live dog in this fight. Yeah, I'm definitely not treating it like a cakewalk at all. I mean, it's an extremely competitive matchup. Um, but I do think that that it is fair to say that that Poirier is the more legitimate champion of the two. I, I think that Oliveira getting that path to the title, uh, especially in retrospect. I mean, especially I'm in retrospect with how shot Tony Ferguson has looked, um, with how you know maybe fringe top five Chandler has looked. Um, I don't think Oliveira being, you know, the undisputed champion is too legitimate, but you still got to give him credit. I mean, he was, uh, you know, kind of a almost a journeyman flyweight or a featherweight for a few years, uh, reinvented himself at this lightweight weight class, you know, took one loss, but went on, went on a crazy streak, a lot of finishes. Um, and, you know, obviously has reinvented himself, improved his striking massively. Uh, he had been known for kind of wilting and quitting in a few fights. We've seen him come back a few times, got poked in the eye versus Tamer, came back and won, got uh, dropped early versus Chandler, came back and won. So Oliveira, I mean, is reinventing himself at this lightweight weight class. And I think his stock has honestly rose since he gained the title. I mean... I don't know if uh, if he speaks English himself or he he has somebody translating his tweets, but he's he tweets out funny shit all the time. Um, so you know you gotta love both these guys, both great fighters, both great guys outside the cage, and this is just you know an A plus elite level fight. It doesn't get any better than this in MMA. What do you think is the big changes that Charles Oliveira's made that's turned him from that sort of action fighter, always getting the submissions, to being a champion? Well, I think it has a lot to do with his strength of schedule. I do think that. Um, I think that if you look at his wins in that win streak, he has like a, a plethora of like B tier wins. You know, Guida and Jim Miller and Tamer, Jared Gordon, Kevin Lee. These are good fighters, but they're not really close to you know top 15 top 10 i mean he really uh i mean lee was top 10 at the time ferguson was but not actually and so is chandler he really has three top 10 wins out of those eight wins so i think obviously not cutting the weight is big for him um he you know used to really deplete himself getting down to 145 and i think that kind of contributed to a, a few of the times that he wilted in fights um but now not having to cut weight and I, I think that 
there's just clear improvements in his striking technique. I think he must have gotten with the new striking coach at some point over the past three or four years. And, um, you know, he's got that, you know, tie style of striking, mixes in knees, kicks, elbows, punches really well. His boxing has gotten better. Um, so I think that it's A, the weight cut, and B, his improvements in his striking, honestly, not being completely relying on that grappling. He still is uh, an A-plus grappler, still has no submissions in MMA history or UFC history. I doubt anyone will ever beat that, right? Um, but um, he's not completely relying on that grappling. You know, he has the striking to go along with it now. I think he's a lot more composed than he used to be. And I think that there was once upon a time where Charles Oliveira, because he didn't have the confidence in his striking that he does now, there was this urgency to get a fight to the ground as quickly as he could. This time around, though, he's a lot more patient. He's a lot more happy to strike. And I think especially his kick game is something which has made a lot of improvements because he's a long guy for lightweight. And he's got, a, I think, I think got a pretty decent kick on him. Um, and we see it as well. There was often a time where Charles Oliveira, he would often crumble when he had a lot of pressure and he faced a lot of adversity. I think that's something which has changed as well. We saw that against Chandler. Like There were plenty of times when Michael Chandler was on the verge of winning the fight. But Charles Oliver was able to ride it out and then got the finish right at the start of the second round. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned that earlier. It seems like his, his toughness, his resilience has leveled up a little bit. I mean, if you go back and watch that Tamer, I mean, I think both of Tamer's fingers go right into his eyes i mean his eyes are bright red he's like crying tearing up like can barely see i was for sure thinking that he was gonna you know take the no contest take the dq or whatever he kept fighting and he submitted uh tamber just a few minutes later so uh, i think that his his durability um is still a concern you saw the way he got dropped by that punch versus chandler it's just his his he does have that mental fight in him now to to recover and to get a fight back. So uh, he's definitely improved in that area. And I think mental toughness as well is something which has really been you could see it a lot in Dustin Poirier as well. Like I'm going to read some of Dustin Poirier's wins over his past couple of years. Conor McGregor twice, Justin Gagey, Eddie Alvarez, Anthony Pettis, Max Holloway twice. This is like a who's who of some of the best sort of middle-class fighters, lightweight, featherweight, that you can come across. Like, we've got a guy here who is on the verge of being a UFC Hall of Famer. And if he gets this lightweight belt, he's all but locked his place in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he, you know, it's it's hard to put, I don't put too much credence into the, the Hall of Fame, but I mean, I think he's pretty much already at that level. Um, you know, wins over McGregor, Hooker, Holloway, Alvarez, and Gaethje is just incredible. I mean, those those that could be half of the the best lightweights of the past ten years, and uh, Poirier has beat them all decisively. Um, and you know, this is just such an amazing matchup. It really is hard to pick who you are going to. Uh, you know, there's who you want to win, who you think you uh, is going to win, and I definitely want Poirier to win. But because I want him to win, I'm giving even more uh, of a chance to Charles Oliveira because, um, you know, getting down to the matchup, it should be a striker versus grappler matchup, right? Uh, I mean, Oliveira is going to be able to hang at times on the feet with Poirier, but you got to think the longer the fight stays on the feet, the, the prolonged striking exchanges, 
especially later in the fight where Poirier is much more experienced. Mm-hmm. You got to think that favors the better boxer, the better striker in Dustin Poirier. He's also much more durable as well. We've seen Poirier eat, you know, tons and tons of damage and, you know, not even get wobbled, not even get dropped. And we've seen Poirier Oliveira get dropped with, you know, some glancing type of punches. Um, and then the striking, I'd say, is about 70-30 for Poirier, right? 70% of the exchanges should be going Poirier's way. The grappling, on the other hand, is probably, you know, 90-10 for Oliveira. So you got to think that Oliveira is going to be wanting to get this fight to the floor. He's going to be looking to wrestle here pretty urgently. And the fight really comes down to how urgently Oliveira wrestles. Because in some fights of his, we've seen him wrestle right away, hit takedowns, and show his immaculate top game. Some fights we've seen him strike a little bit, maybe look to, look to mix in the wrestling later. He, I don't think he can strike first versus Poirier. I think he really needs to get off wrestling early. And I think he likely needs to, to get a takedown to translate it into a finish in the first round or two. Because after that, I think the round three, four, and five experience really favors Dustin Poirier. I mean, Poirier has been scheduled for five rounds for like, what is it? Uh, I'm looking at eight fights in a row here, I think. Yeah, I think um, he's last He's three gone the full five fight. rounds against Holloway. I think I think Dustin Poirier's last three round was fight UFC two eleven. Uh, yes, the Eddie Alvarez fight was Alvarez. Yeah. Um. So he's gone. You know, he knocked out Gaethje in round four. He uh, beat Holloway over five rounds. He withstood the early storm from Dan Hooker in rounds one and two and came back in three, four, five. Poirier is used to rounds three, four, and five. He can go that full 25 minutes. Um. He he's just a lot more familiar with his cardio. So you got to think. If it gets out of round two, it's probably favoring Dustin Poirier at that point. But I'm still not discounting Charles Oliveira finding a finish in rounds one and two because Oliveira's wrestling is is good. His top game is great. His submissions are great. And he really could finish Dustin Poirier in the early rounds here because Poirier has struggled defensive grappling-wise. He, um, you know, obviously was defeated. And I don't think he fought to his highest potential versus Khabib. He he panicked a bit at times. He felt the pressure. He made a few mistakes because he was frustrated. And I think he will be a bit better prepared for the grappling here versus Oliveira. Um, what I really look at for this fight is who the guys that he's been training with. He's been training with uh, Mateusz Gamrat, um, Mosvar Ivalev, like some uh, real high-level grapplers up at ATT that are going to help him get prepared for this fight. So I've been talking for a bit. I'll pass it back to you, Carl. What are you thinking about the matchup? I'm glad you mentioned Gamrot there because Gamrot is a hell of a good jiu-jitsu guy. So I think if there's somebody who you want to replicate the game of Charles Oliveira, I think Gamrot is one of your best choices. Um, I'm very similar to you. I think we're going to see... We're going to see Charles Oliveira much more eager to go to the ground than he did against Michael Chandler. So I can see the takedowns trying to come thick and early. Um, I do share some of the concerns in terms of Dustin's uh, takedown defense. Um, and I also think Dustin can maybe sometimes be a little bit porous with his striking. Like I, I go back to the Dan Hooker fight. He ate a lot of big shots against Dan Hooker, who was another similarly long-framed lightweight fighter, much in the same way of Charles Oliveira. But Charles Oliveira has a very long frame. And I can see Dustin Poirier hammering that body. And I think it could be one of those situations where he takes those sort of big shots and then come the fourth and fifth rounds, the damage becomes too much and Dustin Poirier gets the win. 
Yeah, I like I like that prediction. Um, looking at the odds here, um, Poirier minus one sixty three. That's about um, 63 percent. I think I think it's about right. I think Poirier should be the deserved favorite here. Um, I give him the cardio edge, the durability edge, the boxing edge. Um, he really just has to to defend the takedowns. I don't think he's gonna defend the takedowns. I don't think he's going to stuff the shots straight out. He's going to get taken down initially, and then he needs to, you know, safely work back to his feet, not let Oliveira get a hold of his neck, not give up his back to Oliveira, um, because he's not going to have that same explosive athleticism as Michael Chandler to be able to explode out of that back take. Um, but we have seen Oliveira get the takedowns on guys, get submission attempts, seem to have good advantage positions, not be able to finish them, and then, you know, he wilted, then he got knocked out. The Paul Felder fight is the mm-hmm. one I'm talking about, his most recent loss. He took down Felder. He had Felder in some good submission attempts. Felder not a particularly great grappler, and he was able to just gut out those submission attempts, not get not get stopped, and started hammering away on Oliveira there. So I think it's going to be really sweaty. I mean, I'm definitely not betting Dustin Poirier here. I, I love the guy. I'm not going to be betting him because I think rounds one and two, I mean, there's a real grappling threat that we have to be aware of. Um, And, you know, as a big Dustin Poirier fan, I'm kind of prepared for him to lose. I am. I think that, I don't know, I'm just getting vibes that Oliveira is going to take him down. Um, I'm getting vibes that, you know, Poirier hasn't quite fixed up all those holes in his grappling defense uh, from the Khabib fight. We saw him get uh, taken down and mounted by Eddie Alvarez a few years back as well. And, um... I just think that if Oliveira gets his right fight with the grappling, I think he really could pull off a finish in the early rounds here uh, with a, a submission like Leo for Poirier. So if I'm betting Oliveira, I would probably take him by rounds one, two, and three finish. Maybe Charles sub round one, sub round two, um, and then maybe look to live bet Poirier after, after to see how he's doing with the takedowns. So gun to my head pick. I'm going Dustin Poirier, uh, likely knockout in round three or four. At the moment, the INC poll has this 60-40 in favor of Dustin, which I think is pretty much the same way I'm leaning as well. I am going to pick Dustin Poirier to win this one. I'm going to say fourth round stoppage, but I'm in a very similar boat to you as well. To you, Charles Oliveira is a very live dog in this fight. There is a big possibility of him getting that early submission, which I think is the way if. Oliveira is going to win this fight. That's how it's going to happen. And if Charles Oliveira does win this fight, bearing in mind what Dustin Poirier has done this year, bearing in mind that he's the A side going into this pay-per-view, what does that do to the perception of Charles Oliveira? Um, I think, you know, I think it drops it a little bit. Um, But, you know, he is the underdog fight. People know that, that, that Poirier is a tough matchup for him. Um, you know, you're going to hear some idiots call him, you know, paper champ, all this bullshit. I mean, there's no need to insult the man. I mean, I would never, mm. I, I call, I, I question the legitimacy of his belt. I'm not going to sit there and call him a paper champ and tweet at him and, you know, insult him or whatnot. I mean, it's not his fucking fault. The UFC decided to make that fight for the undisputed lightweight championship. He won the fight. Um, it's his belt. And, um, you know, I think he'll, he'll still be around for, for a long time without, uh, you know, it, even if he loses this fight, yeah, you know, you're not, he's not going anywhere. Uh, I'm sure he'll bounce back. Um, I would love to see him fight, uh, Benil Daryush, Islam Mahachev. I mean, those are real fun matchups and, uh, you know, he's going nowhere. So, um, you know, Oliveira, I think, 
you know, could still have a good three or four years left in his career after this. And I think, I'm glad you mentioned that about uh, Charles Oliveira, because in my opinion, any fighter who becomes UFC champion has to deserve it in some way. They have to have done something and have some kind of talent. There There aren't people who are just given belts. They've got to do something to earn it. Even if you're Nico, Nico even if you're Nico. a Nico Montano or a Dave Mene <laughs> or someone of that sort of ilk, they still had some good qualities to warrant getting the belt anyway. So, and I think Charles Oliveira is in that boat. I mean, the guy was on a nine-fight winning streak. You 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 can't be a bad fighter and be on a nine-fight winning streak in the UFC. No, no. I mean, yeah, he's he's terrific. Um, and th- this is, like I said, A-plus versus A-plus, elite-level matchup. Um, in these fights, you know, they're extremely competitive. Um, and what we have been saying, the last thing I'll say, though, is I think like nine of the past ten main events have gone the distance. A lot of those fights have been favored to end inside the distance. A lot of those fights have had crazy moments where you think it's going to finish. Crazy back-and-forth wars like Fontenaldo and Vittori and, uh, versus Dumont. and Costa. But nine out of the past ten. Yeah, nine out of the past. <laughs> yeah, crazy war in that one. Um, but we're we're seeing a lot of main events go the distance lately, so we're kind of on a trend for that. Even though this one is extremely likely to end inside the distance, the odds have it at like uh, minus five fifty to go inside the distance. So that's eighty five percent to end by finish. So you know, it would be crazy to see this one go cards. And that is all the time that we have for the UFC 269 preview show. Probably one of the longest shows that we've actually done, John, which I think it's a sign of how good this card's been, that we've just got ourselves so engrossed in these main card matchups and the potential ramifications of them. I'm really looking forward to the card, and I'm sure you are as well. Hell yeah, man. I mean, it's deserved to be... One of the longest shows because it, this is a seven-fight main card pay-per-view, in my opinion. I mean, don't let it fool you that Emmett, Ige, Cruz, Munoz are on the paper, uh, the prelims. Those are elite-level fights. So really looking forward to this card. Incredible matchups. And I've enjoyed uh, discussing it with my man Carl, as always. So thank you to the INC listeners. You can find me at Martian MMA on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I talk about the betting odds for every single UFC fight. And you can follow me at UFO underscore UFC on Twitter. And, uh, you know, thanks to Carl for having me on again. We'll see you before the next uh, UFC 270 pay-per-view. And that'll be the first card of 2022 because we're going to be taking a month-long break. We're going to be enjoying New Year, Christmas. Any plans to uh, bring in the New Year to uh, celebrate uh, the 25th? No, no, I might have to reinvent my personality during that three-week <laughs> break with no UFC. I don't know what I'm going to be doing with myself. I might take up like crocheting or knitting or something like that to keep me occupied. I really got into horse racing during lockdown. Betting on them or just uh, watching them? No, just watching old horse races. No, if you're, like, if you're betting on them, I can get with it. Well, I would bet on the old ones because I know who wins. <laughs> You yeah, put it put it on at a bar or something. And be like, hey, buddy, you want to make a bet? I'll take uh, I'll take number seven. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much for joining us, John. It has been an absolute pleasure once again for you to join us. Um, and we've done a full twelve months of preview shows, which is the first time that we've done this on uh, the INC sort of franchise. Which a big thank you to you because 
you certainly bring out the motivation in me to continue doing these shows. Um, I want to say a big thank you as well to everybody who's been tuning in over the past 12 months. We've been growing up to, I think, nearly 300 subscribers since we started the INC Live channel, which I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been supporting us, providing any sort of feedback in regards to fighter interviews, in regards to uh, the recaps, the preview shows, of course, and... 2022 we hope to continue this trend we've got ourselves another interview coming out on friday so stay tuned to that one uh for now though this has been the ufc 269 preview show my name's been carl Birmage. that's been john martian and we'll see you again in uh, see you guys later we'll see you again in about oh 29 28 days time uh, where we'll be talking about one of the biggest heavyweight fights of recent years Francis Ngannou versus Steve Ilgarn, UFC 270. This is the INC. Thank you for watching.